0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Tonight, we have a collection of essays from John Muir, the famous California naturalist, called The Father of the National Parks, Muir's enthusiasm and dedication for the natural wonders of the West, and of Yosemite in particular, helped lead to the establishment of the National Park System. We'll begin by reading the text of one of the National Park Service's informational signs in Yosemite Park at the Sentinel Bridge view of the Great Half Dome, an awe-inspiring granite dome. This is a good introduction to Muir's letter, A Geologist's Winter Walk. Muir never intended to publish this. It is an extract of a letter to a friend who, appreciating its fine literary quality, took the responsibility of sending it to the Overland Monthly without the author's knowledge. It relates one of Muir's many trips into Yosemite. An Awanachi Tale of Half Dome Long ago, two travelers, Tisiak and her husband Tokoyi, fought with each other. He became so angry that he began to beat her. Enraged, she hurled a basket of acorns at him. As they stood facing each other, they were turned to stone for their wickedness. The acorn basket, today's basket dome, lies upturned beside Tokoyi, North Dome, and the rock face of Tisiac, Half Dome, is stained with tears. Millions of years ago, the granite block of Half Dome was larger, but there never was a matching half. Undercut by glaciers near the base, slabs of rock fell away from a broad vertical crack in the granite, leaving a sheer face. Remnants of the missing rock still project from Half Dome's rim. There are more granite domes here in Yosemite than any other place in the world. And thus, Tissiac is the Awanachi name for Half Dome, and Tisiac is the focus of Muir's tale a geologist winter walk. After reaching Turlock, I sped a foot over the stubble fields to Hopeton, conscious of little more than that the town was behind and beneath me and the mountains above and before me. On through the oaks and chaparral of the foothills to Colterville, and then ascended the first great mountain step upon which grows the sugar pine. Here, I slackened pace for I drank the spicy, resiny wind, and beneath the arms of this noble tree I felt that I was safely home. Never did pine trees seem so dear. How sweet was their breath in their song, and how grandly they winnowed the sky. I tingled my fingers among their tassels, and rustled my feet in their brown needles and burrs, and was exhilarated and joyful beyond all I can write. When I reached Yosemite, "'All the rocks seem talkative "'and more telling and lovable than ever. "'They are dear friends "'and seem to have warm blood "'gushing through their granite flesh. "'And I loved them with a love "'intensified by long and close companionship. "'After I'd bathed in the bright river, "'sauntered over the meadow, "'conversed with the domes "'and played with the pines, "'I still felt blurred and weary "'as if tainted in some way "'with the sky of your streets.' I determined, therefore, to run out for a while and say my prayers in the high mountain temples. The days are sunful, I said, and though now winter, no great danger need be encountered, and no sudden storm will block my return if I am watchful. The morning after this decision, I started up the canyon of Tenaya, caring little about the quantity of bread I carried, for I thought a fast, and a storm, and a difficult canyon— were just the medicine that I needed. When I passed Mirror Lake, I scarcely noticed it, for I was absorbed in the great Tisiac, her crown a mile away in the hushed azure, her purple granite drapery flowing in soft and graceful folds down to my feet, embroidered gloriously with deep shadowy forest. I gazed on Tisiac a thousand times, In days of solemn storms, and when her form shone divine with the jewelry of winter, or was veiled in living clouds, and I have heard her voice of winds and snowy tuneful waters when floods were falling, yet never did her soul reveal itself more impressively than now. I hung about her skirts, lingering timidly, until the higher mountains and glaciers compelled me to push up the canyon." This canyon is accessible only to mountaineers, and I was anxious to carry my barometer and clinometer through it, to obtain sections and altitudes, so I chose it as the most attractive highway. After I had passed the tall groves that stretch a mile above Mirror Lake and scrambled above Tenaya Fall, which is just at the head of the lake groves, I crept through the dense and spiny chaparral that plushes the roots of the mountains here for miles in warm green. And was ascending a precipitous rock front, smoothed by glacial action, when I suddenly fell, for the first time since I touched foot to Sierra Rocks. After several somersaults, I became insensible from the shock, and when consciousness returned, I found myself wedged among short, stiff bushes, trembling as if cold, not injured in the slightest. Judging by the sun, I could not have been insensible very long, probably not a minute. Possibly an hour, and I could not remember what made me fall, or where I had fallen from, but I saw that if I had rolled only a little further my mountain climbing would have been finished, for just beyond the bushes the canyon wall steepened, and I might have fallen to the bottom. "There," said I, addressing my feet, to whose separate skill I had learned to trust night and day on any mountain. That is what you get by intercourse with stupid town stairs and dead pavements. I felt degraded and worthless. I had not yet reached the most difficult portion of the canyon, but I determined to guide my humbled body over the most nerve-trying places I could find, for I was now awake and felt confident that the last of the town fog had been shaken from both head and feet. I camped at the mouth of a narrow gorge which is cut in the bottom of the main canyon determined to take earnest exercise next day. No plushy boughs did my ill-behaved bones enjoy that night, nor did my bumped head get a spicy cedar-plume pillow mixed with flowers. I slept on a naked boulder, and when I awoke, all my nervous trembling was gone. The gorge portion of the canyon, in which I spent all the next day, is about a mile and a half in length and I pass the time in tracing the action of the forces that determine this peculiar bottom gorge, which is an abrupt, ragged-walled, narrow-throated canyon formed in the bottom of the wide-mouthed, smooth and beveled main canyon. I will not stop now to tell you more. Some day you may see it, like a shadowy line from Cloud's Rest. In high water, the stream occupies all the bottom of the gorge, surging and chafing in glorious power from wall to wall. But the sound of the grinding was low as I entered the gorge, scarcely hoping to be able to pass through its entire length. By cool efforts, along glassy, ice-worn slopes, I reached the upper end in a little over a day, but was compelled to pass the second night in the gorge. Next morning, I rose, nerved, and ready for another day of sketching and noting, and any form of climbing. I escaped from the gorge about noon, after accomplishing some of the most delicate feats of mountaineering I ever attempted. And here, the canyon is all broadly open again, the floor luxuriantly forested with pine and spruce and silver fir. The walls rise in Yosemite forms, and Tenaya Creek comes down several hundred feet in a white brush of foam. This is a little Yosemite Valley. It is about 2,000 feet above the level of the main Yosemite and about 2,400 below Lake Tenaya. I found the lake frozen and the ice was so clear and unruffled that the surrounding mountains and the groves that looked down upon it were reflected almost as perfectly as I ever beheld them in the calm evening mirrors of summer. At a little distance, It was difficult to believe the lake frozen at all, and when I walked out onto it cautiously, stamping at short intervals to test the strength of the ice, I seemed to walk mysteriously without adequate faith on the surface of the water. The ice was so transparent that I could see through it the beautifully wave-rippled sandy bottom and the scales of mica glinting back the downpouring light. When I knelt down with my face close to the ice, through which the sunbeams were pouring, I was delighted to discover myriads of Tyndall's six-rayed waterflowers magnificently covered. A grand old mountain mansion is this Tanaya region. In the glacier period it was a Mer de Glace far grander than the Mer de Glace of Switzerland, which is only about a half a mile broad. The Tanaya Mer de Glace was not less than two miles broad, late in the glacial epoch, when all the principal dividing crests were bare and its depth was not less than 1,500 feet. Ice streams from Mounts Lyle and Dana and all the mountains between from the nearer Cathedral Peak flowed hither, welded into one and worked together. After eroding this Tanaya Lake Basin and all the splendidly sculpted rocks and mountains that surround and adorn it, and the great Tenaya Canyon, with its wealth of all that makes mountains sublime, they were welded into the vast South, Lyle, and Ilouette glaciers on the one side, and with those of Hoffman on the other, thus forming a portion of a yet grander Glace in the Yosemite Valley. I reached the Tenaya Canyon on my way home by coming in from the northeast. Rambling down over the shoulders of Mount Watkins, touching bottom a mile above Mirror Lake. From thence, home was but a saunter in the moonlight. After resting one day and the weather continuing calm, I ran up over the left shoulder of South Dome and down in front of its grand split face to make some measurements, completed my work, climbed to the right shoulder, struck off again along the ridge for cloud's rest, and reached the topmost heave of her sunny wave "'in ample time to see the sunset. "'Cloud's rest is a thousand feet higher than Tisiac. "'It is a wave-like crest upon a ridge "'which begins at Yosemite with Tisiac, "'and runs continuously eastward "'to the thicket of peaks and crests around Lake Tenaya. "'This lofty granite wall is bent this way and that "'by the restless and wearless action of glaciers, "'just as if it had been made of dough.' But the grand circumference of mountains and forests are coming from far and near, dancing into one close assemblage for the sun. Their God and Father, with love ineffable, is glowing a sunset farewell. Not one of all the assembled rocks or trees seemed remote. How impressively their faces shone with responsive love. I ran home in the moonlight with firm strides, for the sun love made me strong down through the junipers, down through the firs, now in jet shadows, now in white light, over sandy moraines and bare clanking rocks, past the huge ghost of South Dome rising weird through the firs, past the glorious fall of Nevada, the groves of silhouette, through the pines of the valley, beneath the bright crystal sky blazing with stars, all of this mountain wealth in one day, one of the rich ripe days that enlarge one's life so much of the sun upon one side of it and so much of the moon and stars upon the other and that concludes a geologist winter walk we'll return right after these sponsor messages And now, back to our story. And now we'll hear An Ascent of Mount Rainier, taken from picturesque California and the region west of the Rocky Mountains, published in 1888. Ambitious climbers, seeking adventures and opportunities to test their strength and skill, occasionally attempt to penetrate the wilderness on the west side of the Sound and push on to the summit of Mount Olympus. But the grandest excursion of all to be made hereabouts is to Mount Rainier, to climb to the very top of its icy crown. The mountain is very high, 14,400 feet, and laden with glaciers that are terribly roughened and interrupted by crevasses and ice cliffs. Only good climbers should attempt to gain the summit, led by a guide of proved nerve and endurance. A good trail has been cut through the woods to the base of the mountain on the north. But the summit of the mountain never has been reached from this side, though many brave attempts have been made upon it. Last summer, I gained the summit from the south side in a day and a half from the timber line, without encountering any desperate obstacles that could not in some way be passed in good weather. I was accompanied by Keith, the artist, Professor Ingram, and five ambitious young climbers from Seattle. We were led by the veteran mountaineer and guide Van Trump of Yelm, who many years before guided General Stevens in his memorable ascent, and later, Mr. Bailey of Oakland. With a cumbersome abundance of camp stools and blankets, we set out from Seattle, traveling by rail as far as Yelm Prairie on the Tacoma and Oregon Road. Here, we made our first camp and arranged with Mr. Longmire, a farmer in the neighborhood, for pack and saddle animals. The noble King Mountain was in full view from here, glorifying the bright sunny day with its presence, rising in godlike majesty over the woods with the magnificent prairie as a foreground. The distance to the mountain from Yelm in a straight line is perhaps 50 miles, but by the mule and yellow jacket trail we had to follow, it is a hundred miles. By night of the third day, we reached the Soda Springs on the right bank of the Nisqually, which goes roaring by gray with mud, gravel, and boulders from the caves of the glaciers of Rainier, now close at hand. The distance from the Soda Springs to the Camp of the Clouds is about 10 miles. The first part of the way lies up the Nisqually Canyon, the bottom of which is flat in some places and the walls are very high and precipitous, like those of the Yosemite Valley. The upper part of the canyon is still occupied by one of the Nisqually glaciers, from which this branch of the river draws its source issuing from a cave in the gray, rock-strewn snout. About a mile below the glacier, we had to ford the river, which caused some anxiety, for the current is very rapid and carried forward large boulders as well as lighter material, while its savage roar is bewildering. At this point, we left the canyon, climbing out of it by steep zigzagging up the old lateral moraine of the glacier, which was deposited when the present glacier flowed past at this height and is about 800 feet high. From the top of the moraine still ascending, we passed for a mile or two through a forest of mixed growth, mainly silver fir, patent spruce, and mountain pine, and then came to the charming park region at an elevation of about 5,000 feet above sea level. Here, the vast continuous woods at length begin to give way under the dominion of climate, though still at this height retaining their beauty and giving no sign of stress of storm, Sweeping upward in belts of varying width, composed mainly of one species of fir, sharp and spiry in form, leaving smooth, spacious parks, with here and there separate groups of trees standing out in the midst of the openings like islands in a lake. Every one of these parks, great and small, is a garden filled knee-deep with fresh, lovely flowers of every hue the most luxuriant and the most extravagantly beautiful of all the alpine gardens I ever beheld in all my mountaintop wanderings. We arrived at cloud camp at noon, but no clouds were in sight, save a few gauzy ornamental reefs adrift in the sunshine. Out of the forest at last there stood the mountain, wholly unveiled, awful in bulk and majesty, filling all the view like a separate newborn world, Yet with all so fine and so beautiful, it might well fire the dullest observer to desperate enthusiasm. Long we gazed in silent admiration, buried in tall daisies and anemones by the side of a snowbank. Higher we could not go with the animals and find food for them, and wood for our own fires. For just beyond this lies the region of ice, with only here and there an open spot on the ridges in the midst of the ice, with dwarf alpine plants, which reach up far between the glaciers, while back of us were the gardens and abundance of everything that heart could wish. Here we lay all afternoon, considering the lilies and the lines of the mountain, with reference to a way to the summit. At noon next day, we left camp and began our long climb. We were in light marching order, save one who publicly determined to carry his camera to the summit. At night, After a long, easy climb over wide and smooth fields of ice, we reached a narrow ridge at an elevation of about 10,000 feet above sea level, on the divide between the glaciers of the Nisqually and Cowlitz. Here, we lay as best we could, waiting for another day, without fire, of course, as we were now many miles beyond the timberline and without much to cover us. After eating a little hardtack, each of us leveled a spot, to lie on among lava blocks and cinders. The night was cold and the wind coming down upon us in stormy surges drove gritty ashes and fragments of pumice about our ears while chilling to the bone. Very short and shallow was our sleep that night, but day dawned at last, early rising was easy, and there was nothing about breakfast to cause any delay. About four o'clock we were off, and climbing began in earnest we followed up the ridge on which we had spent the night, now along its crest, now on either side, or on the ice leaning against it, until we came to where it becomes massive and precipitous. Then we were compelled to crawl along a seam or narrow shelf on its face, in which we traced to its termination in the base of the great ice cap. From this point, all the climbing was over ice, which was here desperately steep, but fortunately was at the same time carved into innumerable spikes and pillars which afforded good footholds, and we crawled cautiously on, warm with ambition and exercise. At length, after gaining the upper extreme of our guiding ridge, we found a good place to rest and prepare ourselves to scale the dangerous upper curves of the dome. The surface almost everywhere was bare, hard, snowless, ice, Extremely slippery, and though smooth in general, it was interrupted by a network of yawning crevasses, outspread like lines of defense against any attempt to win the summit. Here, every one of the party took off his shoes and drove stout steel cocks about half an inch long into them, having brought tools along for the purpose and not having made use of them until now so that the points might not get dulled on rocks ere the smooth and dangerous ice was reached. Besides being well shod, each carried an alpenstock, and, for special difficulties, we had a hundred feet of rope and an axe. Thus prepared, we stepped forth afresh, slowly groping our way through tangled lines of crevasses, crossing on snow bridges here and there after cautiously testing them, jumping at narrow places and crawling around the ends of the largest, bracing well at every point with our stocks and setting our spiked shoes squarely down on the dangerous slopes. It was nerve-trying work, most of it, but we made good speed nevertheless, and by noon all stood together on the utmost summit, save one who, his strength failing for a time, came up later. We remained on the summit nearly two hours, looking about us at the vast map like views, comprehending hundreds of miles of the Cascade Range, with their black interminable forests and white volcanic cones and glorious array reaching far into Oregon. The sound region also, and the vast plains of eastern Oregon, hazy and vague in the distance. Clouds began to gather. Soon Of all the land, only the summits of Mount St. Helens, Adams, and Hood were left in sight, forming islands in the sky. We found two well-formed and well-preserved craters on the summit, lying close together like two plates on a table, with the rims touching. The highest point of the mountain is located between the craters, where the edges come in contact. Sulfurous fumes and steam issue from several vents, giving out a sickening smell that can be detected at a considerable distance. The unwasted condition of these craters, and indeed to a great extent of the entire mountain, would tend to show that Rainier is still a comparatively young mountain. With the exception of the projecting lips of the craters at the top of a subordinate summit and a short distance to the northward, the mountain is solidly capped with ice all around and it is this ice cap which forms the grand central fountain where all the twenty glaciers of Rainier flowed, radiating in every direction. The descent was accomplished without disaster, though several of the party had narrow escapes. One slipped and fell, and as he shot past me, seemed to be going to certain death. So steep was the ice slope no one could move to help him, but fortunately, keeping his presence of mind, he threw himself on his face and digging his alpenstock into the ice, gradually retarded his motion until he came to rest. Another broke through a slim bridge over a crevasse, but his momentum at the time carried him against the lower edge and only his alpenstock was lost in the abyss. Thus crippled by the loss of his staff, we had to lower him the rest of the way down the dome by means of the rope we carried. Falling rocks from the upper precipitous part of the ridge were also a source of danger, as they came whizzing past in successive volleys. But none told on us, and at length we gained the gentle slopes of the lower ice fields. We ran and slid at our ease, making fast, glad time. All care and danger passed, and arrived at our beloved cloud camp before sundown. We were rather weak from want of nourishment, and some suffered from sunburn, notwithstanding the partial protection of glasses and veils. Otherwise, all were unscathed and well. The view we enjoyed from the summit could hardly be surpassed in sublimity and grandeur. But one feels far from home so high in the sky, so much so that one is inclined to guess that, apart from the acquisition of knowledge and the exhilaration of climbing, more pleasure is to be found at the foot of the mountain than on their tops." Doubly happy, however, is the man to whom lofty mountaintops are within reach, for the lights that shine there illuminates all that lies below. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. And finally, the charming little essay, Wild Wool, was written for the Overland Monthly in 1875. Here, Muir discusses the differences between cultivated and wild nature. Moral improvers have calls to preach. I have a friend who has a call to plow, and woe to the daisy sod or azalea thicket that falls under the savage redemption of his keen steel shares. Not content with the so-called subjugation of every terrestrial bog, rock, and moorland, he would fain discover some method of reclamation applicable to the ocean and the sky, that in due calendar time they might be brought to bud and blossom as the rose. Our efforts are of no avail when we seek to turn his attention to wild roses, or to the fact that both ocean and sky are already about as rosy as possible, the one with stars and the other with foam and wild light. The practical developments of his culture are orchards and clover fields wearing a smiling, benevolent aspect, truly excellent in their way, though a near view discloses something barbarous in them all. Wildness charms not, my friend, charm it never so wisely, and whatsoever may be the character of his heaven, his earth seems only a chaos of agricultural possibilities calling for grubbing hoes and manures. Sometimes I venture to approach him with a plea for wildness, when he good-naturedly shakes a big mellow apple in my face, reiterating his favorite aphorism, Culture is an apple orchard. Nature is a crab. Not all culture, however, is equally destructive and unappreciative. Azure skies and crystal waters find loving recognition, and few there be who would welcome the axe among the mountain pines or would care to apply any correction to the tones and costumes of mountain waterfalls. Nevertheless, the barbarous notion is almost universally entertained by the civilized man, that there is in all the manufactures of nature something essentially coarse, which can and must be eradicated by human culture. I was therefore delighted in finding that the wild wool growing upon mountain sheep in the neighborhood of Mount Shasta was much finer than the average grades of cultivated wool. This fine discovery was made some three months ago, while hunting among the Shasta sheep between Shasta and Lower Klamath Lake. Three fleeces were obtained, one that belonged to a large ram, about four years old, another to a ewe about the same age, and another to a yearling lamb. After parting their beautiful wool on the side and many places along the back, shoulders, and hips, and examining it closely with my lens, I shouted, Well done for wildness! Wild wool is finer than tame! My companions stooped down and examined the fleeces for themselves, pulling out tufts and ringlets, spinning them between their fingers, and measuring the length of the staple, each in turn paying tribute to wildness. It was finer, and no mistake, finer than Spanish merino. Wild wool is finer than tame. Here, said I, is an argument for fine wildness that needs no explanation, not that such arguments are by any means rare, for all wildness is finer than tameness, but because fine wool is appreciable by everybody alike, from the most speculative president of National Wool Growers Associations all the way down to the good wife spinning by her fireside. Nature is a good mother, and sees well to the clothing of her many bairns. Birds with smoothly imbricated feathers, beetles with shining jackets, and bears with shaggy furs. In the tropical south, where the sun warms like a fire, they are all allowed to go thinly clad, but in the snowy northland she takes care to clothe warmly. The squirrel has socks and mittens, and a tail broad enough for a blanket. The grouse is densely feathered down to the ends of his toes. And the wild sheep besides his undergarment of fine wool, has a thick overcoat of hair that sheds off both the snow and the rain. Other provisions and adaptations in the dresses of animals, relating less to climate than to the more mechanical circumstances of life, are made with the same consummate skill that characterizes all the love work of nature. Land, water, and air, jagged rocks, muddy ground, sand beds, forests, underbrush, grassy plains, etc., are considered in all their possible combinations while the clothing of her beautiful wildlings is preparing. No matter what the circumstances of their lives may be, she never allows them to go dirty or ragged. A mole, living always in the dark and in the dirt, is yet as clean as the otter or the wave-washed seal, and our wild sheep wading into the snow, roaming through bushes and leaping among jagged storm-beaten cliffs, wears a dress so exquisitely adapted to its mountain life that it is always found as unruffled and stainless as a bird. On leaving the Shasta hunting grounds, I selected a few specimen tufts and brought them away with a view to making a more leisurely examination. But owing to the imperfectness of the instruments at my command, the results thus far obtained must be regarded only as rough approximations. The effects of human culture upon wild wool are analogous to those produced upon wild roses. In the one case, there is an abnormal development of petals at the expense of the stamens. In the other, an abnormal development of wool at the expense of the hair. Garden roses frequently exhibit stamens in which the transmutation to petals may be observed in various stages of accomplishment. And analogously, the fleeces of tame sheep occasionally contain a few wild hairs that are undergoing transmutation to wool. Even wild wool presents here and there a fiber that appears to be in a state of change. In the course of my examinations of the wild fleeces, three fibers were found that were wool at one end and hair at the other. This, however, does not necessarily imply imperfection or any process of change similar to that caused by human culture. Water lilies contain parts variously developed into stamens at one end, petals at the other, as the constant and normal condition. These half-wool, half-hair fibers, therefore, subserve some fixed requirement essential to the perfection of the whole, and they may simply be the fine boundary lines where and exact balance between the wool and the hair is attained. I have been offering samples of mountain wool to my friends, demanding in return that the fineness of wildness be fairly recognized and confessed. But the returns are deplorably tame. The first question asked is, now truly, wild sheep, wild sheep, have you any wool? While they peer curiously down among the hairs through lenses and spectacles, Yes, wild sheep, you have, but Mary's lamb had more. In the name of use, how many wild sheep think you would be required to furnish wool sufficient for a pair of socks? I endeavor to point out the irrelevancy of the latter question, arguing that wild wool was not made for man, but for sheep, and that, however deficient as clothing for other animals, it is just the thing for the brave mountain-dweller that wears it. Plain, however, As all this appears, the quality question rises again and again in all its commonplace tameness. For in my experience, it seems well nigh impossible to obtain a hearing on behalf of nature from any other standpoint than that of human use. Domestic flocks yield more flannel per sheep than the wild. Therefore, it is claimed that culture has improved upon wildness. And so it has, as far as flannel is concerned, but all the contrary, as far as a sheep's dress is concerned. If every wild sheep inhabiting the Sierra were to put on tame wool, probably only a few would survive the dangers of a single season. With their fine limbs muffled and buried beneath a tangle of hairless wool, they would become short-winded and fall an easy prey to the strong mountain wolves. In descending precipices, they would be thrown out of balance and be killed by their taggy wool catching upon sharp points of the rocks. Disease would also be brought on by the dirt which always finds its lodgment in tame wool and by the draggled and water-soaked condition into which it falls during stormy weather. No dogma taught by the present civilization seems to form so insuperable an obstacle in the way of a right understanding of the relations which culture sustains to wildness as that which regards the world as made especially for the uses of man. Every animal, plant, and crystal controverts it in the plainest terms, yet it is taught from century to century as something ever new and precious." And in the resulting darkness, the enormous conceit is allowed to go unchallenged. I have never yet happened upon a trace of evidence that seemed to show that any one animal was ever made for another as much as it was made for itself. Not that nature manifests any such thing as selfish isolation. In the making of every animal, the presence of every other animal has been recognized. Indeed, every atom in creation may be said to be acquainted with and married to every other. But, with universal union, there is a division sufficient in degree for the purposes of the most intense individuality. No matter, therefore, what may be the note which any creature forms in the song of existence, it is made first for itself, then, more and more remotely, for all the world and worlds." Were it not for the exercise of individual cares upon the part of nature, the universe would be felted together like a fleece of tame wool, but we are governed more than we know, and most when we are wildest. Plants and animals and stars are all kept in place, bridled along appointed ways with one another, and through the midst of one another, killing and being killed, eating and being eaten, in harmonious proportions and quantities. And it is right that we should thus reciprocally make use of one another, rob, cook, and consume to the utmost of our healthy abilities and desires. Stars attract one another as they are able, and harmony results. Wild lambs eat as many wild flowers as they can find or desire, and men and wolves eat the lambs to just the same extent. This consumption of one another and its various modifications is a kind of culture varying with the degree of directness with which it is carried out. But we should be careful not to ascribe to such culture any improving qualities upon those on whom it is brought to bear. The water plucks moss from the river bank to build its nest, but it does not improve the moss by plucking it. We pluck feathers from birds and, less directly, wool from wild sheep for the manufacture of clothing and cradle nests without improving the wool for the sheep or the feathers for the bird that wore them. When a hawk pounces upon a linnet and proceeds to pull out its feathers, preparatory to making a meal, the hawk may be said to be cultivating the linnet. And he certainly does effect an improvement as far as hawk food is concerned. But what of the songster? he ceases to be a linnet as soon as he is snatched from the woodland choir and when hawk-like we snatch the wild sheep from its native rock and instead of eating and wearing it at once carry it home and breed the hair out of its wool and the bones out of its body it ceases to be a sheep these breeding and plucking processes are similarly improving as regards to the secondary use aimed at and Although the one requires but a few minutes for its accomplishment, the other, many years or centuries, they are essentially alike. We eat wild oysters alive with great directness, waiting for no cultivation, and leaving scarce a second of distance between the shell and the lip. But we take wild sheep home and subject them to the many extended processes of husbandry, and finish by boiling them in a pot a process which completes all sheep improvements as far as man is concerned. It will be seen, therefore, that wild wool and tame wool, wild sheep and tame sheep, are terms not properly comparable, nor are they in any correct sense to be considered as bearing any antagonism toward each other. They are different things, planned and accomplished for wholly different purposes." Illustrative examples bearing upon this interesting subject may be multiplied indefinitely, for they abound everywhere in the plant and animal kingdoms wherever culture has reached. Recurring for a moment to apples, the beauty and completeness of a wild apple tree living its own life in the woods is heartily acknowledged by all those who have been so happy as to form its acquaintance. The fine, wild piquancy of its fruit is unrivaled, But in the great question of quantity as human food, wild apples are found wanting. Man, therefore, takes the tree from the woods, manures and prunes and grafts, plans and guesses, adds a little of this and that, selects and rejects, until apples of every conceivable size and softness are produced. Orchard apples are, to me, the most eloquent words that culture has ever spoken. But... They reflect no imperfection upon nature's spicy crab. Every cultivated apple is a crab, not improved but cooked, variously softened and swelled out in the process, mellowed, sweetened, spiced, and rendered pulpy and foodful, but as utterly unfit for the uses of nature as a metal lark killed and plucked and roasted. Give to nature every cultured apple, coddling pippin russet and every sheep so laboriously compounded, muffled south downs, hairy cotswolds, wrinkled merinos, and she would throw the one to her caterpillars and the other to her wolves. It is now some 3,600 years since Jacob kissed his mother and set out across the plains to begin his experiments with the flocks of his uncle Laban, and notwithstanding the high degree of excellence he attained as a wool grower and the innumerable painstaking efforts subsequently made by individuals and associations in all kinds of pastures and climates, we still seem to be as far from definite and satisfactory results as we ever were. In one breed, the wool is apt to wither and crinkle like hay on a sun-beaten hillside. In another, it is lodged and matted together like the lush, tangled grass of a manured meadow. In one, the staple is deficient in length in another, in fineness, while in all there is a constant tendency towards disease, rendering various washings and dippings indispensable to prevent its falling out. The problem of the quality and quantity of the carcass seems to be as doubtful and as far removed from a satisfactory solution as that of the wool. Desirable breeds blundered upon by long series of groping experiments are often found to be unstable and subject to disease, causing infinite trouble, both among breeders and manufacturers. Would it not be well, therefore, for someone to go back as far as possible and take a fresh start? The source or sources whence the various breeds were derived is not positively known, but there can be hardly any doubt of their being descendants of the four or five wild species so generally distributed throughout the mountainous portions of the globe, the marked differences between the wild and domestic species being readily accounted for by the known variability of the animal, and by the long series of painstaking selection to which all its characteristics have been subjected. No other animal seems to yield so submissively to the manipulations of culture, Jacob controlled the color of his flocks merely by causing them to stare at objects of the desired hue, and possibly Merinos may have caught their wrinkles from the perplexed brows of their breeders. The California species, Ovis Montana, is a noble animal, weighing when full-grown some 350 pounds, and is well worthy the attention of wool growers as a point from which to make a new departure. For pure wildness, is the one great want, both of men and sheep. And that concludes our little foray through wildness with naturalist John Muir. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.